you'll take your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter number 2. I can tell you without reservation that if I had one thing that I could say over the many years is that Jesus has never failed to keep a single promise that He has made to us as His people. He has been faithful beyond all imagination to this church. To think that years ago this church started in my dad's front yard... Uh, with just a couple of lawn chairs to see all that God has brought us through to bring us to this day. God has been more than faithful and He is blessed on every turn. So I want to say thank the Lord for His goodness to my family and to this church. Luke chapter number 2 this morning. I'll try to be uh, fairly expedient as we go through uh, the scriptures, and as we preach this morning, we have much more in the service we've got to get to, so I want to uh, just kind of expedite it as much as possible. Verse number 21 of the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 2, the Bible says, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named after uh, of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now you see three different Jewish celebrations and uh, 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 kind of uh, events take place here. Jesus' circumcision, uh, Mary's purification, and uh, Jesus' dedication as the firstborn. So there's many things taking place here, but really what you need to understand is they've come to the temple and they brought Jesus to this place. We're introduced now to a man in verse number 25, and is this man that we'll study today. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord... Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, and which, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. As I come to this morning's message I considered and deliberated and prayed over what to preach on. Over and over throughout the week, my mind changed back and forth from subject to subject, not really knowing what to preach. There's many things taking place today. We celebrate 35 years of God's goodness and uh, just His faithfulness to our church and all that our church has gone through and all that our church is today. We celebrate that and remember that. And so I thought of that. Then today we honor several men, but two specifically. And we'll get into that more in the service a little later on. But today we're going to be honoring Brother Billy Davenport and Brother Harold Pickett for their years of faithfulness to our church. 
And so there were many things going through. And then to top it all off, on an anniversary Sunday, the crowd is so much different than on any other Sunday. Certainly many faithful people are here that are here every single week, but we have visitors here. And to you, I want to say welcome. But there is a level of intimidation when you don't really know your audience. And so I deliberated on what to preach. I thought, well, do we have an informational or just simply a gospel message? Or do we have a message that is helpful and instructive to all that are involved? Today, what's difficult about the crowd is there are some people in this church that are new converts. They just got saved. They're very new in their faith, very young Christians. And so they don't understand a lot of theological truths. And they're just working out the the fundamentals of their faith. And so they're not familiar with a lot of Bible language. Then you have people that have been here literally 35 years just this morning in my Sunday school class. I had two people who were either a charter member or who came the week after charter member. Could you imagine being that guy that's just one week shy of 35 years? Brother Lanny, thank you for being here this morning. But it is an intimidating thing and, and it's further complicated by the fact that uh, denominationalism and frankly false religions that many people carry from their backgrounds make even agreeing on terminology different. For instance, if I said this morning that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was blessed beyond all women in the world. That's not an unbiblical thing to say because even uh, uh, the angel told her, Blessed art thou among women and highly favored of God. She was blessed and she was able to bring into this world the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I mean, she was blessed, but to someone from a Catholic background, that, that language speaks an entirely different thing. You see, in Catholicism, they believe that Mary is a sort of mediatrix. They believe that she uh, prays for all of humanity. They believe that she sort of stands as an intermediator. The Bible disagrees. It says there is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. They believe that she is sinless. And and my friend, the Bible says there's only one man in history that's ever been able to to be sinless, and that was the sinless Lamb of God. So I just say all this to say it's it's a tough thing to preach a message to new believers and to those of you that have been here 35 years. It's a tough thing to know how to speak and what to speak on. It would be akin to asking a teacher to go into a school, calling every grade level of that school, kindergarten through 12th grade, and teaching a lesson that not only everybody could understand, but that everybody benefited from. I mean, this is like trying to teach somebody simple addition and advanced algebra. You understand the predicament I'm in. I prayed and I sought the Lord's counsel on this and I came to this passage of Scripture. And specifically this man. Because I think so many people come to church and their experience at church is utterly disappointing. I mean, you know you should be there. You know why you should go. You know it's the right thing to do. You even know it's biblical. But when you get there, there just seems to be an emptiness after you leave. And if there's no emptiness, there's certainly not a change that takes place. Nothing magical happens, to borrow a worldly term. Nothing 
extraordinary. It's just like every Sunday is kind of the same and there's just nothing special about one and nothing memorable about the next. My friend, I want to tell you that was not the way God's plan for His church would be. We come to a man who had visited the temple likely every week and probably towards the later ends of his life almost every day. Come to a man very familiar with religion. Very understanding of terminology. He, he would be one of these 35-year charter members. He's been in Sunday school every week. I mean, he knows his Bible. But in his heart, he knew there had to be something more. And so whether you've just come to our church or whether you've been here for 35 years, I want to make sure that we understand how we can get the most out of every church experience. Today I want to share with you just three thoughts quickly as we study this man, Simeon. Number one, if you want to get the most out of your church experience, you must be unlike everyone else. See, everyone else comes to church and doesn't get anything. Everyone else comes to church and the next morning can't remember the sermon. And they certainly don't carry with themselves any amount of meat throughout the week. For most people, they just come to church to check it off the list. But the followers of God, His true disciples, were always going to be a little bit odd. I mean, the Bible calls us a peculiar people. In Christianity, that's a compliment. In grade school, that was an insult. And yet, if you're going to come to church and maximize your church experience, if you're going to come and truly have a memorable moment... You've got to understand you can't be like everyone else. What's remarkable about this man is God said, Hey, there's someone I want you to meet. Before you ever leave this world, God thought it important to introduce His Son to this man. Why did He choose this man of all men? What was so special about Simeon? We, we know so little about him. But let me tell you what we do know about him tells us he was unlike most people in his day. First of all, I want you to see he was a righteous man. The Bible says here in verse number uh, 24, I believe it is. Let's see. Uh, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just. That word just means one who loves justice or a man who was righteous. Let me tell you the kind of man Simeon was. Simeon was the kind of man that knocked on your door and said, Hey friend, can I borrow your mower? You say, Okay, Simeon, I guess you can borrow my mower. Well, Simeon was the kind of guy that took your mower, mowed his yard, but before he brought it back, he filled up the gas tank and sharpened the blades for you. Simeon was the kind of guy who was a high character individual. He loved being a good man and he enjoyed being a good man. And Don't you want friends like that? Good friends, friends that just have high moral values and people that what we would call like contributors to society. Simeon was that man. He was a righteous man. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 tells us that God loves people who love righteousness. Micah 6 verse 8 says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee. But to do justly, that word means to do righteous, to be righteous, to be a good man. Proverbs 21 verse 3, to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Are you a person who loves righteousness? 
You see, sometimes we're put in this life in predicaments where our righteousness must be compromised for gain. Where making an extra buck means that we don't necessarily have to keep our word. Years ago, I remember making a a very big financial mistake. I called my dad. I told him what I had done. His belly dropped through the floor just like mine did when I told him what I had done. The mistake I had made ended up being about $2,800. And when we first got there, we didn't know what we were going to do. And we had to call the person who I had kind of trespassed against. And uh, we didn't know what to do. But I remember driving down the road, knowing this was going to cost us at least $2,800. And my dad said, son, we need to call him and tell him. We need to call him and tell him. Now, could we have hid that? Could we have just kind of dusted it under the nearby bush? Certainly. But my dad was a man who loves righteousness. He's a man who wanted to do justly, just like Simeon was a man who wanted to do justly. You see, God loves people who love righteousness. You say, wait a minute, Brother Andrew, doesn't God love sinners? Yes, God loves sinners, but He is pleased with righteousness. The Bible says, God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves sinners, but He is pleased with righteousness. You want to know the reason God is pleased with righteousness? Because it reflects one of His divine attributes. He is a righteous God. He is a good God. He is a God of moral integrity and character. And so when we are that, God is pleased. But I want you to understand this very clearly. And I do not want to misspeak because I realize the audience has some newborns and some, some much older in the faith. We as Christians do not live righteously in order to obtain our salvation. There are those in this world that believe in their mind because whatever philosophy has taught them that if they can do enough good, they will in some way please the Lord. And that that good will some way acquire for them eternal life and a home in heaven forever. The Bible says this, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. You cannot please God enough to earn your salvation. Even the Apostle Paul who said, Oh, concerning the law, I'm I'm blameless. Even he had to say, Not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of faith, In Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. And if you will place your faith in Him, you can be received into eternal life. It's only through Christ. Paul did not have his eternal hope built up in himself. He had his faith in Jesus Christ. But what Paul did do is he served to please God as a result of his salvation. He did not serve to earn His salvation as a way of pleasing God. There's a big difference. So we find that Simeon was a righteous man. He loved righteousness. He was secondly a religious man. The Bible says in verse 25, Not only was he just, but he was also devout. That word devout means God-fearing, a pious man. In our world, people want to uh, despise religion. You'll even hear sometimes ministers and preachers say, and I think appropriately, we do not have a religion, we have a relationship with Jesus. And I understand what they mean, but by definition, religion simply means a forethought of what comes after this. It speaks of ramifications of a divine creator, 
It speaks of considerations that one day we will stand before Him in judgment. Really, in its simplest form, religion is considering what comes after this life. Let me ask you, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with thinking that maybe there's something after we take our final breath in this life? Someone once said, he who fails to plan, plans to fail. It's funny that the greatest philosophers of humankind have said, oh, religion is foolish and religion is vain. These great minds are not preparing for what comes after? As if there's some expert in it that they've never been to before? Friend, you ought to consider what comes after this. The Bible says, it is appointed unto man once to die, after this the judgment. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you're saved, the very moment you take your last breath here, you wake up in heaven with the Lord. But if you are lost, the Bible says that in hell, the rich man lift up his eyes. You want to know who the most religious people in the world are? Those that just left it. Because if you die, friend, I want you to understand, you will either wake up looking into God's glorious face in heaven... Or you will wake up in the torment of the flames of hell. You'll be religious at that moment. But our world is trying to muddy the waters of religion. They attempt, uh, by my estimation, two real strategies. Number one, they try to consolidate religions. To make you think that all religions are created equal. That they all lead to the same place. The great theologian Muhammad Ali said religions all have different names. But they all contain the same truths. I think the people of our religion, he referring to Islam, should be tolerant and understand people believe different things. Well, you can understand Muhammad Ali was probably a better boxer than he was a Bible student. But I want you to understand as well, Gandhi said this, Religion is one tree with many branches. As branches, you may say religions are many, but as a tree, religion is only one. And if you get lost in the Eastern mysticism of that, he also said, Religions are different roads converging upon the same point. What does it matter that we take different roads so long as we reach the same goal? The world wants to muddy the waters and make you think that as long as you have faith, all faith is created equal. Dear friend, if you do not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world, you do not have a faith that will last. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. The Philippian jailer, upon hearing that all the prisoners stayed behind, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And a guy who might be considered an expert on the terms of salvation, I mean, after all, he wrote the book of Romans, he said this, Thou must believe on the name of anybody you want. Believe in the name of whatever spiritual figure tickles your fancy. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Oh, my friends, salvation by nature is very inclusive because the rich, the poor, the great, the mighty, the weak, and the strong, we all come to the same God and we all have to say, Lord, it is only by Your grace. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how long you've been there. It doesn't matter what you've done while you've been there. We are all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But there is only one way. So in that way, it is very exclusive. All are welcome, but all go the same way is through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
fact, the Bible puts a pretty stern warning. It says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only faith that will last in the day of death. He was not only a righteous man and a religious man, he was a man. Oh, I forgot this, and this is pretty good. I don't want to forget this. They not only uh, attempt to kind of convolute and combine all religions, they attempt to cancel all religion. You see, if they can't just confuse you, they want to cancel religion in general. Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, quoted a philosopher when he said, He who has science and art... Religion too has he. Who has not science has not art. Let him religious be. What he's saying is, art and science are the greatest achievements of mankind. If you have those two, you have your religion. If you can't get along and you don't understand or appreciate the great achievements of mankind, you might need religion as your crutch. Religion has become in our world something that people frown upon. Something that people say, "Eh, it's just a crutch. No, dear friend, it is a stretcher. And I am leaning fully on it. You see, this thing of religion, people want to make it a bad thing like it's a bad word. They're trying to cancel it. Karl Marx, the father of Marxism, he said the first requisite for the happiness of the people is the abolition of religion. He wants it all gone, thinking that that will improve society. They want to cancel it. They want to combine it all. But it is only through Jesus Christ, the one way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He was a religious man and a righteous man, but he was also a responsive man. Quickly, we've got to hurry. Verse 25, the Bible says he not only was a just man and a devout man, the Bible says and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Uh, Simeon, uniquely, was a man led of the Holy Spirit. He was a man who was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And if you are new to the faith, when you get saved, the Bible says the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. Ye are sealed unto the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, it calls it the earnest of your inheritance. uh, You buy a house, you put down earnest money. It's a sort of down payment. Your taste of heaven right now in this life is the fact that the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of your heart. The Holy Spirit of God is willing to help you and, and lead you and guide you. And Simeon was a man who was very responsive to the Holy Spirit's leadership in his life. But so many people in our day and age have made the leadership of the Holy Spirit something that is totally divorced from Scripture. It's just this herky-jerky, however I feel, whatever I want, the Holy Spirit's leading me to that. Years ago, I was in Bible college, and it was the almost every breakup line of every girl on campus. I just feel the Lord wants me to go a different direction. Well, I, I wish the Holy Spirit had been more involved in our relationship to begin with. Maybe we wouldn't be at this place. You see, but people... Blame God for all sorts of stuff they do. Oh, preacher, I just feel like the Lord's leading me away from the church. Okay, where's He leading you to? Oh, I don't know that yet. We'll figure that out. God doesn't call you from things to never send you to things. The burning bush appeared to Moses and God said, I want you in Egypt, son. God calls us to, not from. 
We've got to understand that the Holy Spirit is not some uh, wind that blows that nobody else can predict and that it's only exclusive to us. Listen, the Holy Spirit of God always works in conjunction with God's written Word. We have more information than any dispensation or generation of Christian that came before us. We have God's inspired, completed, infallible Word. And His Holy Spirit guides us in to truth. He will always concur with His Word. God's not a liar. God is not a man that changes His mind. He's not going to say in one place, well, this is wrong, but in another place say, this is right. You see, men have come up to their preachers and said, Preacher, I just feel like God wants me to leave her. Huh. Well, if you'd have been more familiar with God's leadership when you got married, maybe God wouldn't be asking you to leave her now. Were you totally out of tune with God then, or are you totally out of tune with God now? God doesn't waffle back and forth. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's mind is settled on these matters. Listen. A healthy relationship with God's Word will always result in a healthy relationship with God's Holy Spirit. He does not divorce Himself from this book. Jesus' high priestly prayer, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. The Spirit of God guides us into the truth of His Holy Word. We find that He was a righteous man and a religious man and a responsive man. But yet... I do feel like there was something supernatural about the way the Holy Spirit spoke to him. I do not mean to say that uh, God revealed by his bedstand at night. No, if you just pay attention, God was speaking to everyone. You see, uh, Jewish rabbis believed that there were 351 messianic prophecies that led up to the Old Testament's completion. 351. Now, they disagree on who the Messiah is, but I believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He was the promised one sent from God. That means that when Jesus came, He fulfilled 351 verses in the Old Testament. I mean, all Simeon had to do was pick up Daniel chapter 9, and he could have found out when Jesus was going to arrive. All he had to do was turn over to Micah 5 and verse 2. He could have found out where he was going to arrive at. And then when you find out that uh, the birth of John the Baptist and the announcement of uh, uh, of his birth and the angel appearing to his father in the temple, all of this, the Bible says this was noised abroad. While Jesus' birth was relatively private, the forerunner to Jesus was not at all. I just think Simeon was a man who knew God's Word and was led of the Holy Spirit to believe that Jesus Christ would come any day. He was a man who was looking for Jesus. In this way, he was different than everyone else because when news got back to uh, uh, the kings of that day that Jesus would be born, you know what they said? Where is it he should be born? Where is this king of the Jews supposed to be born? Well, that was in God's Word, just nobody else knew about it. In fact, you have magi coming from the east to be there. You know how they knew it? They weren't led of the Holy Spirit. They just read it in Daniel. See, God's Word divinely and supernaturally leads in conjunction with the Holy Spirit of God. Most people come to church and they sit in their pew not realizing that every time we open this book, it is truly as if God was speaking to you. 
There are churches and denominations today that do not have their own Bible. I mean, somebody in the congregation does, but they don't. Hey, just take their word for it. And you don't take my word for it. If it's not in this book, it ain't from God. This book is God's word written for you. It's His message of love to you. Do you look every time we open God's Word and truly believe that God is speaking, not to your neighbor, but to you? If you're going to be a person that maximizes your church experience, you must be unlike everyone else. You must be, secondly, be looking for something else. Be looking for something else. Realize that the status quo of Christianity is not God's plan. Realize that the Christianity that everyone else has is not the Christianity that God wants you to have. There will be more Christians that experience a mediocre, doldrum kind of life in this life because they never fully engage God on the promises that He has. Most people, frankly, just will never experience God the way He desires for them to experience Him. That whole thing of abiding in Christ and He abiding in us and uh, we produce fruit as we abide in Him, most people will never know what that truly means to live out. But God's plan for you is that you would. His plan is that your Christianity would not just be something you check on Facebook, but it would be something that you live out every single day. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling, realizing that God is good and that He's helping you through this life. And no matter what you face in life, God will stick with you. Most people will know nothing about that kind of faith. Here's a man that visited the temple every single day. The temple, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Now Solomon's temple is considered one of those wonders. It was destroyed. It was rebuilt back by Jews. But when Herod the Great rose up in power, he redecorated, he he pulled a fixer-upper, if you will, and he restored Herod's temple to the glory of Solomon's temple. It was magnificent. Everything overlaid with gold. Everything absolutely splendid. And see, Simeon comes into this place and sees all the goings on there. And you know what he looks around and says? There's something else. The gold, the structures, the practices, the ordinances, all of it. It's meaningful and it's good. But there's something more. Most people come to church and the best compliment they give our church is, that's a beautiful building. It's a great auditorium. Dear friend, if you come to this church service today and the best thing you get out of it is, man, you know, everything was decorated really nicely, you've missed it. Because the same baby that Simeon was able to pick up and hold is the same God who is present and ready to meet with you today. It's real, man. It's, it's legitimate. It is, all, it is personal to you. But most people come into the temple so distracted by the gold and so distracted by the goings-on that they miss the God of the building. You come looking for something more than what most people have. Most of the time we come to church and get exactly what we expect out of it. There's zero preparation, therefore there is zero harvest. We get average and ordinary Sundays because that's what we expect. That's what we anticipate. 
And so God meets our desires by giving us nothing. Because that's exactly what we want. Come expecting more. Even as I prayed for this message, I found myself guilty of this very same thing. I pray prayers that say, God, would you do something great in our presence? But then I realized in my mind, am I preparing as if he's going to? I mean, we have lunch plans scheduled after the service. If God wanted to keep us longer, we'd have to sneak out the back. And I get we all have to eat. I understand that. My point is this. We expect exactly what we get every week. But God wants to give you more. Most people experience life, but not abundant life. Christ didn't come to give you life. He came to give you life and more abundantly. We find that if you're going to be a Christian that experiences the most in church, you must be unlike everyone else. Be a righteous person. Be a religious person. Be a uh, submissive person to the Holy Spirit. Be looking for something else. Don't be satisfied with what everybody else gets. Don't be satisfied with the, the worship that most people experience. But I want you to see thirdly, if you're going to be a person that experiences the most out of church, you must be satisfied with nothing else. Notice what Simeon says in verse 30. He says, Lord, verse 29, Lord, now lettest thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Lord, now I can, I can go to the grave. Lord, I don't need anything else. Simeon's bucket list item was seeing this Messiah. And now as he holds him, he says, this is the salvation that God has prepared for His people. Years ago, the Powerball had gotten up some unbelievable high. I think it was well over $800 million. And uh, my wife and I played a few games from time to time, and it was so much, and it had grown so much, I told my wife, I was like, baby, if you won the Powerball, what would you buy first? What would you spend your money on? And so we had these discussions and you say, Brother Andrew, were you playing the Powerball? Yeah, I was playing the Powerball. Now, I wasn't buying any tickets, but you see, my chances of winning were only slightly worse than yours if you bought one. <laughs> but if God had somehow blew a ticket across my foot, and I said, it's the winning ticket, you bet I'd have turned that thing in. We, my wife and I would go back and forth, and my wife's so adorable, and she's so innocent and sweet. I mean, she's like... Well, you know, I would, I would pay off our house and our, all of our debt. And, you know, I would I'd pay off my parents' debt. And I'm like, come on, get to the good stuff. What are you talking about? Debt retirement. You know, I'd probably build a patio for the backyard. I'm like, patio? You got $800 million dollars. And you're pouring a pat of concrete and putting a, 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 a cover over it? So innocent and so sweet. I mean, I had that $800 million spent like that. You know, I'm like, well, there's a ranch in Colorado that I'd buy, a private jet to get to the ranch in Colorado. I mean, a full-time pilot to take me to that ranch in Colorado. I mean, I spent it all. If you could have one thing in this life... One thing, 
What would it be? Simeon's answer. To see the Savior. To know Him. To look upon His face and realize that this is the salvation of God. Most Christians' answer would be varied, but most probably wouldn't be spiritual. Not like this man. Lord, now let me depart in peace. I can go. I've seen the Lord. Until we get to the place where we are unsatisfied with what we have. And we will only be satisfied with knowing Christ. We will never experience Him. See, Jeremiah says, Ye shall seek me and find me when ye have sought after me with your whole heart. Whole heart. Can you say today that you're wholeheartedly seeking the Lord? That you want to know Him and not just know about Him, but to have a personal relationship with Him? To experience what it is to be gracious at every moment, to be kind to others, to to be able to pray for your enemy. Do you know Him like that? Because that's what He wants for you. Years ago, my wife and I visited Thailand. We visited the Cone family and they took us around to the various ministries that they had and we got to see and and work with them a little while. And then today, I believe Brother Randy and Miss Gwen are in quarantine in Thailand, probably watching this service. And we got to go with them to their ministry and they had to go into the homes of many Pakistani refugees. And it was a wonderful experience. But I think we visited something like 11 or 12 people in one day. Now, these people, culturally speaking, are incredibly kind. But if you come into their home, they're going to give you something. They have something prepared for you. And Brother Randy had just about threatened each and every one of them within an inch of their life that they weren't to make food and they weren't to prepare anything for us because we had to get to the next visit. But without fail, every single one of them had made something. What's more remarkable is these people are living below poverty level. I mean, they don't even have enough for themselves, but yet when we walk in, they said, oh, we've got some tea for you. Now, their tea is much different than ours. It's like if you mixed hot chocolate with uh, uh, tea with not good tasting things. (laughs) And they serve it hot. But I mean, Brother Randy said, Brother Andrew, if you go into their home... You better receive it. To not receive it is, is to insult them and to, to not appreciate their kindness. We went into some homes, they had teas. We went into other homes, they had crackers and, and cheeses. We went into some homes and they had made full-blown meals. At the end of that day, my wife and my eyeballs were floating in Pakistani tea. We were so grossly overfilled... Because we had to receive what they gave. Brother Randy had prepared us though. If you go in, make sure you go in waiting and ready to receive something. Don't reject it. The reason most people come to church and get nothing out of it is they come not ready to receive it. Like soil unprepared for the seed, so that when the seed is actually planted, it just withers up and dies. Because the soil never received it at all. 
Are you willing to come to church differently than you have come before? To say, Lord, today, may you do something special. And if nobody else in the auditorium gets it, if nobody else in the auditorium experiences it, I don't want to be like everyone else. I want to be different. And I want to experience you on a level that few others will ever reach. Will you be that person? That's the Lord's plan for you. And I've spoken much about a relationship with Christ, about experiencing Him on a deeper level. You know where that level begins? You know where that journey begins? That journey begins in a simple prayer of faith. You cannot know the Lord intimately unless you know Him to to begin with. The Lord taught us in His Word that He came to die for you. And that through His death and resurrection, you can have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Today, if you do not know the Lord, would you just simply pray a prayer of faith and say, Lord, today I accept you as the Lord of my life. I can't earn it. And I can't be righteous enough to get there. I accept your free gift of salvation. If that's you today, would you do that?